episode. Hey guys, welcome to Petri Dish. This is Nathan. I'm Sean. And guys, today we're back with another coronavirus update. Obviously coronavirus, not a big deal, total controversy, no one's dead. Big deal, actually. (laughs) Pretty big deal. And I think there's a lot of kind of confusing news out there for people who haven't delved deeply into science and the way that trials work, right? Sure. And at this point in the outbreak, we have about 2 million confirmed cases worldwide, and about a quarter of those are in the United States. Yeah. And there's been over 117,000 deaths. Right, right? and not all of them are reptile people. Or NPCs. (laughs) Some of them are real humans. Right. And the thing is that this is likely less than the true number, right? Right. In Russia, they're like all pneumonia deaths. In China, they're just somewhere in a Uyghur camp. We don't even know. Yeah. So one thing that I see that comes up a lot on Twitter is somebody will post just like, these are what the numbers are today. Right. Whatever. And like, oh, the US numbers are still going up pretty fast, right? Right. Not great. And then somebody would be like... I don't know why you believe the China numbers. Right, and it's it like, so deeply misses the point. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, look, buddy, probably no one should believe the Chinese numbers, right. but that doesn't change what's happening in the U.S. Yeah, there's still, like, dead people in America. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, you need to be more xenophobic and care about them. <laughs> dead American people. <laughs> but anyway, guys, so we're going to go through some of the potential treatments, but we're going to talk about how those trials are evolving and the controversies around them. What's after that? Oh, and then after that, I wanted to talk briefly about the antibody tests, because I think they're coming up a lot lately about kind of how they're going to save humanity. And I got questions. <laughs> Maybe they got some interesting issues. We we delve into some statistical theory. Yeah. Probabilities. Yeah, exactly. And then we're going to talk about a conspiracy theory, because we got to. Right. It's the same conspiracy theory, but I've decided uh, this time around, I really want to lay out my reasons for why I don't think this virus is man-made. Yeah, and I got to tell you guys, this is exciting. You know, usually I read Sean's notes and they're just, I mean, I don't know. I don't really read them. But these <laughs> notes, these notes were a lot of fun. We're going to delve into some really cool shit on this episode. All right, so let's get into it. So to revisit treatments that have been in the news, there's two of them. One of them is Trump's favorite thing, right? Hydrochloric oxycodone. What is that called again? Yeah, HCQ or hydroxychloroquine. I've noticed just really quickly that you don't have them in the notes. What's the reasoning? Yeah, so hydroxychloroquine, as the data is coming back from various different trials, the different trials are all the fuck over the place. Like seriously, the stuff we've been seeing, most of the trials that have been coming back don't have any kind of control group. And... Some of those trials basically say that there's no difference between people who are treated with it and without it. Just overall, when they do have control groups, they're not seeing a difference. But then other trials are like, it cured everybody or whatever. So right now, I just can't put it in the notes because I haven't seen any really, really good data that has convinced me either way, except that some countries and some hospitals have stopped using it because they consider it too dangerous. So the other treatment is remdesivir. And I think the conversation around remdesivir is really important because whenever you read an article just online and it says, hey, there's this new treatment, it did an experiment, there's not a lot that goes into the experimental model. And the coherence or the goodness, the basic goodness of the experimental model is actually really important for how someone like Sean judges whether this is valuable information or not. And that's really confusing to the layman, I think. So let's talk about remdesivir and let's talk about why or why not the evidence behind remdesivir is good. Yeah, great. So on our last coronavirus episode, 
we did a breakdown of the WHO solidarity trial. Which, by the way, Trump wants to defund. Did you read that? (laughs) (laughs) WHO helps China. And you're like, what is happening? (laughs) The poor guy in charge of the WHO was like, please. (laughs) He's like, please, Donald. (laughs) So (laughs) in the WHO trial, there's basically three-ish different treatments that were there. One of them that is currently in that trial is remdesivir. And so remdesivir is this antiviral drug that was previously created for Ebola. The way that it works is it's supposed to basically kind of sneak its way in there when the virus is trying to copy its genome. Okay. So it looks a lot like the building blocks that make up RNA and DNA. Interesting. Okay. So the virus slips it in and then it kind of gums up the works because it doesn't fit perfectly. Nice. And then basically keeps the virus from It's like if you put Donald Duck in a Nazi factory. Right, and it just like starts fucking up making the bullets, and now now they lose the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge? Yeah, yeah, that was about in World War II where everyone just had like these thick nuts. Oh, okay. Right? And Nazis were like, ah! It's like big American balls <laughs> blinded the Nazis. That sounds very good. No, but just like Donald Duck, Remdesivir junks up the, the process by which viruses make more of themselves. Yeah, yeah, for in sure. In theory. And so here's the thing, is that remdesivir is in a lot of these trials, and a lot of the trials that it is in, like the WHO Solidarity Trial, have a control group. Those trials, the data is going to be coming in future weeks, three weeks, a month, something like that. But what we do have now is very recently, past few days, a study was published that does not have a control group, right? And... As I think I shat on last time, a lot of hydroxychloroquine studies also do not have control groups, and it makes it very difficult to interpret any of that kind of information. Okay. So why, I mean, this is something that we've talked about in several episodes, but why does a control group matter? What does that mean in this case? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that control groups can be very, very useful for interpreting data. One of the things is when you see certain kinds of improvements in people... You want to be able to know, is that because of the drug that I was giving them? Or is this just a 30-year-old person who probably wasn't going to die anyway? Right. Or, you know, there's also, we know that there exists a placebo effect. And in some cases, the placebo effect can help people in certain kinds of measures of health. Acupuncture. Whoa. Controversial. (laughs) Listen to episode four. Stick it to me. Acupuncture. (laughs) So, you know, I think that there's those reasons why you want to control. Another reason why control is very useful, especially for a drug that you don't know very much about is to let you know what kinds of side effects are because of the drug right like chloroquine just does cause heart failure sometimes yes good to know yes but luckily we already know that from the decades that (laughs) we've been using it right Right. (laughs) whereas remdesivir on the other hand we actually don't have very good information yeah about what its side effects are he's in the cimmerillion kind of underrated character <laughs> right right this right. <laughs> gondolin fell and the remdesivir died we don't really know it's kind of in the background a little hazy yeah he's so, like... taken out by christopher tolkien in later <laughs> copies so you know that means that having a control group could really be useful in that sense you could take a look at people who had similar comorbidities or other diseases and see whether or not oh hey when we add remdesivir in we see more people poop a lot or something, right. you know, who knows what. Right. right. There's like more rain in Canada. So the best thing that you can do in these situations where you don't have a control group is what are called historical controls. Okay. And in some kind of future episode, we'll talk about these trials in general. Sure. Clinical trials. A classic example would be like, what if the Nazis had one? <laughs> no, that's a counterfactual. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. So historical controls would be like looking at in the past few months, what happens to patients that weren't given anything? Because 
plenty of patients haven't been given anything. We don't have any proven treatments. Right. So it's just like, hey, people who have been put on ventilators, what happens to them? How many of them survive typically? Right. So you just take like people out there versus the people who are in your study. Right. And so the kind of issues there is that it, you can't randomize those two groups because one of them literally is not under your control. Right. And then another issue there is that there's no guarantee that they match up super well. Maybe in your hospital everyone is awesome or maybe in your hospital it's like Grey's Anatomy and everyone's banging each other all the time and it's all so confusing. awesome well, awesome <laughs> so but, really awesome but like maybe not very good at medicine <laughs> you know so you, you look around and you're like these people are actors <laughs> <laughs> what are we gonna do <laughs> so wouldn't that be such a funny thing for Dan Green to wake up from he like wakes up he's running around and he's like uh, I need the medical chart they're like I'm dude bro like <laughs> like like I'm an actor Dan's like no <laughs> Dan Green, our MD friend. Yes. Successfully uh, diagnosed my anal fissure. Friend of the pod. From thousands of miles away. (laughs) Pretty impressive. Yeah, Pretty impressive. Very good stuff. So, this trial does not have a control. I sent him a photo of my asshole. It was a mistake. It was a butt dial. (laughs) And he was like, you have an anal fissure. (laughs) He's a good doctor. He's a good doctor. Anyway. It is difficult because there is no control group here. You would have to compare to a historical control. Another potential objection to this particular study is that there's not a lot of patient-specific info available. Right. They tell you sort of like some percentages, like, oh, this percentage had comorbidities of like, you know, oh, this percentage had diabetes, this percentage had hypertension. But what we kind of need to know is like individually, like patient one, patient seven, You know, did this guy do well in the trial? Did he survive? Did he get better? And did he have diabetes or not? Is this a drug dealing Tiger King or a polygamous (laughs) Tiger King? Is this one who uses meth to get boyfriends? (laughs) So we need that specific information. Which Tiger King are we treating? (laughs) There's so many. It's more like Tiger Princedoms. So, what are we talking about? <laughs> I don't know anymore. You, okay, but you did this. What even is the study that we're talking about? What did it show? Well, we gave remdesivir to a bunch of people. What happened? 53 patients received remdesivir. Cool. And as far as that sample size is concerned, that's not bad. Hey, by the way, this is such a stupid question, but do we just pump it straight in their veins or do they take a pill? Like, do we... Remdesivir, uh, if I remember correctly, is IV Anal? administered, oh, so it does okay. go into their veins. I thought it was a suppository. And it, it goes in 10 times. Okay, wow. Over the course of 10 days, I think daily. So Ooh, it's so it's not really biblical. I don't know if 10 is an important biblical. <laughs> okay, but for 10 days, 10 times or something, we're pulling the Remy up in these people. <laughs> what happens? Yes. Out of those 53 patients... of them got better than they were. Nice. And 15% got worse. I like those odds, baby. And out of the patients that were on what's called invasive ventilation, so having a tube down your windpipe and having a machine breathing for you. I remember when our dad died and I was asked to say goodbye, but he had a tube in and I was too scared and I left. Why are you doing this? That's onward. (laughs) (laughs) That's a Pixar movie. We think our dad every episode... (laughs) I've been, uh, yeah, his spirit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. When you're on invasive ventilation, in this study, 18% of the patients died. That sounds pretty shit, Sean. So. Some context. (laughs) That's where a control group would have been very useful. You could compare ventilator groups where one of them got remdesivir and one of them didn't. Mm. 
So the best you can do in this case is compare it to a historical control. By the point someone's on a ventilator and they have COVID, what are the rates they die anyway? 20, 30%, 40? Right. So that's the historical control. Yes. And it ranges from 37% to 80%. Okay. So on Remdesivir... Uh, fuck, dude. This fucking drug. Yeah. So on Remy... Yeah. <laughs> on right. Remy D, yeah. uh, people die at 18% when they're on a ventilator, which yeah. I, it sounds pretty rough to me. But without one, when someone's just on a ventilator... They die maybe 80% of the time. Yeah, it's at least double the fatality rate. Wow. 37%. And then up to 80%. And it depends a lot on the study. The studies are kind of all over the place. Right. So I've seen a lot of figures on fatality rate after being put on a ventilator. But even the nicest one I've seen is 37%. It's pretty rough. Yeah. So again, this is we're comparing our remdesivir trial with just what's happened more broadly in the world, which is not quite adequate for what we expect of a scientific study. At least, you know, we need to do more trials. Yeah. But promising. Yeah, I think it's promising. I think one of the things, you know, because I shat so heavily on the hydroxychloroquine trials, somebody might wonder why I seem to be saying that this is more promising than those ones when both of them are uncontrolled. God, I hope we get retweeted by Donald Trump. (laughs) But (laughs) one of the reasons why I think that there's a difference is, first of all, a lot of the hydroxychloroquine trials enrolled a majority of their patients as people who had relatively mild symptoms. Right, so kind of bullshit. So people who are pretty healthy, you give them the drug, and then they're healthy, and you're like, it's because of the drug. And yeah, you're like, I, mean, I don't know, it's buddy. Just, yeah, a lot of people were, you know, maybe at most needing supplemental oxygen. And then a few people were on ventilators, right? Right. Whereas in this study, over half of the people were on ventilators. Right. So I feel like the rest of the study with the other kinds of people, the people who were not on ventilators, I kind of don't really care about, even right. in this study. But because the ventilators, what's called the effect size, which is the difference between things working out or things really going bad, the effect size is really big in this situation. Right. It's like a test for a parachute or something. The effect size between getting pushed out of an airplane with a parachute or without a parachute. Big. Pretty obvious. Right. right? To the point where you kind of don't need to do the part of it without the parachute. Because you kind of already know. Right. It's not going to be great. Right. Right. And so if the effect is really big, the potential difference, then you can feel a little bit better about the results even if you don't have control. Right. You know, that said, hey. There's already clinical trials running that do have control groups for remdesivir. And so hopefully those results will come in and they will kind of confirm what this early thing is saying. I just realized the problem with who for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. They named their trial Solidarity. It's like, it sounds like some <laughs> weird communist or like Polish shit, you know? Like they should have named it like refinancing or something. Or like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, Art of the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's out of the drug? <laughs> Trump's like, who <laughs> read my book? <laughs> then they would have gotten all the money they ever needed from the Donald. Excellent. Okay. So let's take a super quick mini break, unce, unce, and let's talk about antibody tests. Sounds good. So Sean, remind me, the chloroquine study was a French scientist, right? Predominantly. That's why it's bad. 
<laughs> I know I said that before, but I'll say it again. Louis Pasteur happened, Madame Curie, and then she got radiation, and all the Frenchmen were like, let's be poets. <laughs> <laughs> and just like the morons are scientists now. Antibody tests, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, so welcome back to Petri Dish. We're going to talk antibody tests. You know, everyone I know wishes, because we're young people who don't have any symptoms, we wish we had tests so we could know if we have it or don't have it, and then we could start to do things in our lives again. And then you hear, you read on the news, the news, the little boy on the corner, come on, everybody, he's dead now, <laughs> COVID got him. But, but anyway, so you hear on the news that there's tests, and then you know if you had it or not. Yeah. So Sean, tell me, is this another Chinese fake news plot? <laughs> or are antibodies real? Wow, that was great. Let's go to step one. Yeah. <laughs> antibodies are real. Um, Listen to our last episode on the immune system. Yeah, uh, antibodies are a little bit in there. Listen also to our next episode on the immune system, the adaptive one, because there's more about antibodies there. But in mm. any case, I think a lot of people are hearing about these antibody or serology tests against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the thing is, it, it is being sort of bandied around as like potentially like the way we're going to get to all go outside again. Right. right? I think it's so easy for a news story to turn into a panacea. That we have to take a step back and really discuss what these tests mean and how useful they are. Right. So the idea here is that you are taking people's blood. And if these people have been sick with COVID-19 and have successfully mounted an immune response, then in their blood, there should be these little antibody bros that recognize the virus. Okay. And I think some countries are discussing using these tests to almost assign ID papers or something like that. Kind of like an ID that says like, oh, I'm certified immune to SARS-CoV-2 or something like that. And hypothetically, you should be able to use these tests to be able to tell if someone has been sick, even if they were lightly symptomatic or something like that, right? Like, oh, I felt a little sick in January, but I'm not sure if I had it. I never got the PCR test. So now months later, can I check to see if I have the antibody for it? And our data so far suggests that a majority of people who get sick will develop antibodies that we can detect. I like the word majority. Right. So Slippery. In some studies, it looks like a very small minority of people don't develop as many antibodies as we would expect. Mm. Well, so, I want to read that minority report. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I've never even seen that movie. <laughs> well, it was pretty good. Tom Cruise. No, it wasn't. It was pretty good. I never saw it. <laughs> you know who'd be great is Will Smith. They should remake Minority Report with Will Smith. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me about the Minority Report. <laughs> okay, so I would say it's pretty likely that if you have good antibody levels, then that means that you're immune. Because there's also this question floating around out there, like, could I have antibodies but still get sick or something? And for the most part, the general trend in all of virology and the immune system the general trend is if you have a good titer of antibodies in your system, you won't get sick from the same virus again. Okay. okay. I like the majority, the general. I like these words. It's just every once in a while, there are really rare cases of viruses that have evolved in certain ways to like get around the immune system. Right. Like herpes. Uh, yeah. Oh, really? I was joking. Herpes is <laughs> a good example of that. <laughs> um, but I was also thinking like dengue. Dengue herpes. <laughs> God damn it. Don't do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I guess overall, what I'm saying is... I think that if we could conclusively tell if people had and what I just thought of a great 1970s movie it's called Herp Dengue and it's like Paul Newman or something and he's just like this really free living man who gets brought down by the system and the title it's like a Hal Ashby and the title is Herp Dengue 
<laughs> it's, just like, it's just like Paul Newman illustrated, right? God it's like three it. character actors behind him. What the Various fuck? stages of baseball. I don't know why this is happening to you. <laughs> this is the neurological symptom of the herp. It's just ever since you took off your shirt, I've been distracted. I am. I am fully clothed. Okay. Yeah, tell me more about Dengue. <laughs> well, no, it's just uh, Dengue has this sort of weird response that happens in your system called an antibody enhanced effect in that when you have antibodies against dengue it can actually make your sickness worse wow yeah but it's really rare right okay it's like, that's not the normal right kind this is a of bit disease. of a tangent point mm. is usually if you have high antibodies to something you can't get it again right and there are tests out there now there are tests out there now that can test for the presence of these antibodies i'm sure that out of all of these tests some of them are shitty and some of them are better right but out of the ones that I've seen approved by, for example, the FDA and like the European equivalent of the FDA. Sure. They're kind of blood prick tests that are able to take like a small amount of blood and then almost like a pregnancy test sort of have little lines that show up being like, you're pregnant with antibodies or cool. whatever, that kind of thing. I'll be goddamn to let some French organization blood prick me in and <laughs> check on my baby. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> But the point is that these tests have something like a 95% accuracy. Okay. In that, hypothetically speaking, if you use it, it has a 95% shot of getting it right. Right. Well, and luckily, the other 5% people just instantly die. And so they can't possibly <laughs> accidentally get it and spread it. Well, no, right? Oh, whoops. <laughs> well, okay. But so here's the thing. In order to use this test on like... A full population, which I think is almost the hypothetical idea here, right? Is like you right. want to be able to pass out these IDs to people. Scale it up so you're doing 22 million tests a day, right? And so, yeah, the deal is that there's this issue with that 95% number. Right. And it's called Bayes' theorem. Bayes' theorem, which is sort of the underpinnings of what's called Bayesian statistics. Right. And... It has to do with what's called conditional probability. And so that's like the chances of something happening based off of something else. And... So I'm about to talk about stats ideas, and normally the math, like, I I find stats frustrating. Well, but. this stuff makes sense, though. It's kind of intuitive, right? It's like, if 95% of people, you know they have antibodies, and 5% of the times the test fails, and those people actually don't have antibodies, well, then the probability of them spreading it, that's what we're talking about, right? Well, so that's one level. So, yeah, let's start there. Test, 95% accurate. That means out of 100 people, we only do 100 people, we test them five of them will incorrectly test positive. Right. This is something you know very well as someone who's had a lot of pregnancy tests that messed up. <laughs> well, but so here, here's the second part of that that can be the issue. Because you might say, hey, that doesn't sound like very many, right? That's like a relatively small amount. But how many people are actually sick out of that 100 people? It's hard to know for sure. But if we're a little bit generous, we might say that 1% of Americans currently are positive for this antibody. Right. It's okay. a lot of people, but it's still a super minority of the country. Right. And 1% is probably high, but 1% would be 3.3 million people. Okay. So, you know, whatever. But so 1% have the antibodies. So we have 100 people. We test them with this test. Five of them, it says it's positive, but they aren't. Right. One of them, 1%, one of them is actually positive. And the test says it's positive. Right. So you did this test. Six people came back positive. But only one of them was actually positive. Okay, right. That's a terrible percentage. One out of six, correct? Right. right? So out of all the people walking around with this ID card, it would only be right one out of six times. Right. 
Now, those odds get better the higher that percentage is. If it's not 1% of people who have ever been sick, it's 10% or 30% or something. Then we start to shift the odds around, right? right? Then the false positive number of people becomes a smaller minority and everything. Okay. But to begin with, at this point, most of the people who get these ID cards would not actually have immunity. Right. And they would go out there, and if they're not careful, they could get sick. Right. And so I think that that's the sort of danger with this, is that because of the very low number of people who are truly infected or truly have been infected, uh, it would give a false confidence to the people carrying these ID cards. Right. So then we start walking around, we start fucking again, having our bunga bunga, and then we just have a second wave. Right. And so basically there's, I would say, three things that can help here. As we said, the 1% is part of the issue, right? In that, like, oh, if it's 1% of... The 1% are always the issue, aren't they? <laughs> Goddamn. That's why I voted Biden, okay? <laughs> Just kidding, I didn't vote Biden. I wrote in D's nuts. Because <laughs> I'm an anarchist. <laughs> um, Just kidding. Okay. I also want to say sorry to France. A lot of beautiful scientists out there. Okay. Very handsome Gallic faces. That's a little late. I think they all... They, they all, all tuned out? <laughs> yeah, they all threw their phones away. Don't let me distract you. Okay. This situation would work better in New York City than San Francisco. Because New York City is currently getting fucked by this virus. And San Francisco is relatively not as a percentage of their population. Right. And so, because of that, in New York City, you would expect there'd be a much higher percentage of people who have these antibodies. So, it all depends on the population you pick. Instead of thinking about the whole U.S., you're thinking about a particular chunk, maybe that can change the numbers a right. little bit. And, and the logic with a, just a normal COVID test is different, right? Because the logic with a COVID test is that if you could test everyone pretty regularly, then when someone gets it, you can help isolate them. Whereas in this case, you kind of need people to already have been sick. Right. So the PCR COVID test, on the flip side, is about trying to catch people who are sick. And so instead of caring about false positives, which in that case doesn't really matter, Right, because if, if somebody's false positive and you make them self-quarantine or whatever and they weren't actually ever sick, who cares? What about the emotional duress, Sean? <laughs> okay. What's more important is false negatives. Right. And in that case, a lot of times the idea there would be testing them multiple times or from swabs from different parts of their body and stuff like that. Right. And also PCR tests are pretty good as far as false negatives are concerned. All right, cool, um, guys. Let's take... Hold on. Oh, you son of a bitch. I only said one thing that could make this better. I got oh, two other things. You're so tricky. Okay. Another thing that could potentially make this better is testing anybody who is positive for the antibodies with another kind of test. What's okay. the other kind of test? There, there are other ways of doing antibody tests that are more time consuming, but have a lower false positive rate. Okay, cool. Okay. So you basically mix the person's antibodies from their blood right. with virus or you throw them in a lake and see if they sink or swim <laughs> right you make them walk on coals yeah you yeah. know things with just very low false positives okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay and then basically then since we don't expect very many people to be positive in the first place even though it's more time consuming to do this follow-up test maybe it'll still be doable okay right? okay and then the third option is hey all right give people these ids but Tell them that they need to basically do everything that we're already doing. Social distance as much as possible. Hand wash as much as possible. You know, all of these things. Yeah, I can't wait to stop washing my hands. Just suck my fingers. <laughs> Look, based off of 
early on how many people were talking about how huge difference it was in their life to wash their hands a lot. I kind of get the feeling a lot of people weren't washing their hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, people, you still need to wash your hands. Even yeah. if you get one of these ideas, wash your hands. I mean, I used to just throw water in my face and laugh and be like, <laughs> I don't need soap. <laughs> uh, I think, I feel like I read in a book in one of the horrible histories a long time ago that like Gauls used to, or Celts used to wash with soap and Romans didn't. Romans would be like, look at those dirty barbarians using soap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also remember reading. What about their natural histories? Roman odors? Yeah. You about, know? Yep. Anchovy. Cute. But okay, let's take another little minute break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the truth. The truth behind COVID. Jesus. The following is an actual advertisement. A lot of you guys out there have creative projects. Music, photography, screenplays, and short films that deserve to compete and be showcased in festivals. Now, obviously, a pandemic is not a great time to physically go to a festival. And as a result, a lot of ways to get your work out there have been closed off, maybe for the rest of the year. That's why it's great there's the Boston Collective Film Festival. It's a festival for music, photography, podcasts, and cinematic arts that's entirely run online. That means it's still happening, people. They're open for submissions throughout the month, and the winners are showcased on the YouTube channel of their partner, a content creator with 25,000 subscribers. Go check them out at filmfreeway.com Boston. Use our promo code PetriDish to get a 10% discount on your entry fee. Get exposed, not to COVID-19, at the Boston Collective Film Festival. That's promo code PetriDish, all one word, at filmfreeway.com Boston. Submissions until April 20th. Guys, welcome back to Petri Dish. Now it's time for Conspiracy Corner. As you guys know, Sean and I were kind of a yin and a yang. <laughs> I believe in the empirical world, and Sean believes in the world of secret societies and you, ideas. You cuck. Okay. <laughs> so here's the thing, is that I've seen it still bandied around that people believe that this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, was made in a lab. And yeah, like one-third of Americans. Yeah, so I don't want to make a big deal out of this. That's but like a magic number. A poll that came out on April 13th, which is really recent, found that about 30% thought that it was made in a lab. And as you were saying, 30% kind of shows up in polling a lot. 30% of Americans have sex with sheep, guys. Like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. 30% of Americans, like, think the elders of Zion made Tiger King season one. You know, sure. like, whatever. Yeah. yeah, so 16% of Americans aren't sure if the world is round. So, like, there's a there's yeah, see, a certain number of... That number still somehow feels larger. Because <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> okay. Was it Chance the Rapper who didn't think the world was round? Oh, I hope not. I like Chance the Rapper. It was probably someone else. Don't come after us, Chance. There was an NBA player, like a pretty famous one, that, mm. that didn't believe the, uh, that was a flatter. Okay, anyway. <laughs> this is going to be the last time that I'm going to attempt to debunk this. As okay, as we're going to debunk it, go into depth. Sean, tell me, why was COVID not made in a lab? It is practically impossible to prove that, okay? I do want to start out by tempering oh. expectations. Oh, it's the kind of thing where it's really difficult to build a counterfactual for that, right? Like so. the moon landing. <laughs> hey, hey. Okay, but there are a lot of aspects of this virus that make it very unlikely that anyone would build it or design it this way. Right. Okay. And so the first thing has to do with the spike protein. And so we talked about the spike protein before. Uh, the spike protein is what the virus uses to latch onto your cells. Right. And in this case, it latches onto a protein on your cells called ACE2. Okay. 
ACE2 is the same protein that the original SARS grabbed onto. OG SARS. Yeah, OG SARS. So both of them grab onto this ACE2 protein. But the major, like the main part of the spike protein that binds to ACE2 for this new coronavirus is actually totally different from the one from SARS. Mm. Okay, so their spike proteins in the part that matters, the RBD, is different. Okay, okay. And in fact, early computer simulations early on in this outbreak, before we had crystal structures and shit knowing exactly what these spike proteins look like, the computer simulations suggested that the new coronavirus would actually be shittier at binding to ACE2. But that doesn't seem true anymore. Right. Our current lab tests say it's at least as good, if not better. Okay? So what that means is that literally our current models would not have predicted that, like, Oh, it should be this way to be more effective. Right, because this is actually not optimized. The way the spike protein evolved or is different is not the way to optimize a bioweapon. Right. And so it's a completely different, distinct direction of solving that structural problem than what we would have arrived at as engineers. Right. Right. And so basically, if you were trying to adapt a coronavirus to make it into a bioweapon, you'd probably start with something you knew worked in people, like SARS or MERS, and then try to tweak them to make them better in whatever twisted way you wanted to, right? Right. And that's just not the structural way that we see for this virus. Right. Because it has this huge leap in difference for the receptor binding domain. The changes in spike protein reflects such asymmetrical thinking, it probably doesn't reflect thinking. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. And so another piece of evidence is sort of a similar kind of vein here, is that... It has to do with condom usage. Is uh, that... Not yet. Oh, not yet? <laughs> um, is that this current virus is most closely related to bat and pangolin viruses than to SARS. Right. And again, if you were kind of making... If you were picking a virus to start from, you'd probably pick the one that you knew worked in people and not go into animals and start picking other coronaviruses that you weren't sure could infect people at all to mix and match. Pangolin. Not a lot of people are really diving into pangolins. Right, exactly. That's the thing. It's like not even camels or something or pigs. Right. Pangolin's kind of weird. Right. And, uh, you know, pigs is actually a really good example. There was a big outbreak of a coronavirus disease in pigs a few years ago. Right. And that was a (laughs) bioweapon. Just kidding. (laughs) I think that one was called SADS. SADS. SARS. SADS. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So the third argument is what you were talking about with codon usage and silent mutations. Okay. And so what that means, it has to do with the nature of the genetic code, which is how RNA gets read and then turned into amino acids that get put together to make In a ribosome. Yeah. In our abrasome. But basically, RNA is made up of words, and those words are a stand-in for different amino acids. Right. But for any one amino acid, there are several words that match it. Okay? And so what I mean is that, like, for one amino acid, the word toilet, John, or crapper might all describe that one amino acid. Or Lou. Or Lou. Or water closet. Right, exactly. So there's, there's a bunch Stacey's of... Stacy's porcelain toilet throne. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call it in my household. Yeah, the porcelain throne. What that is, is it's called the degeneracy of the genetic code. Mm, so that named means... after famous scientist Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> <laughs> there are several... Especially got talk show. RNA words that correspond to one amino acid. Okay. Okay. And so if you were a scientist and you were trying to build a virus by copy pasting pieces from other viruses there's no reason why you would change any of these words right because there's no functional difference between them 
right? If you were copy pasting from SARS and mixing in a little bit of MERS or HIV or some kind of crazy shit, right. you would just literally keep all the words the same. Why go through all the trouble of changing the words from John to toilet when the sentences will mean the same thing? Maybe to throw them off the scent. Right. So we'll get to that in the end. Okay. <laughs> but these changes do happen over the course of evolution. Okay? Right. And we do see these changes all over the place in SARS-CoV-2. Right. So it's it, like the fact that Crapper can stand in for toilet is not necessarily a really conscious decision over hundreds of years of the English language. Someone named Crapper invented toilet and it kind of picked that name up and became more common in its usage to the point at which no one really remembers why, or most people don't remember the etymology. Yeah, and, and if SARS-CoV-2 is a book or something, yes. then throughout the book you find Toilet and John and Crapper and Lou and Water Closet all used all over the place. Right. right? It's not even consistent. It's very postmodern. It's not even really sentences that you can understand. <laughs> it's mostly just other shit words. And if a computer designed it, it would just pick one. Right? There's no reason why you would just randomly be slotting in different words there. Right. That's evolutionary. Except to throw people off the scent. <sighs> well, again, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, okay. The final note out there is that I've seen it kind of floating around that maybe this virus wasn't man-made to be a bioweapon. Maybe it was man-made for scientific pursuits, namely to try to discover how animal coronaviruses jump into people. I like it. Very what subtle. kinds of mutations help them jump into people, and then it just kind of accidentally broke out. Whoopsie-daisy. Now, again, this is very difficult to disprove. Technically, those kinds of experiments do happen. We do want to understand how animal viruses can jump into people. Right. And in some of those cases, although it's occasionally discouraged, like the Obama administration placed a moratorium on what are called gain-of-function experiments on viruses, mm. where we basically make them better at doing something. Yeah. That's all true. <laughs> okay. But pretty much all of my objections earlier are still at play here, which is to say that if you were going to do a gain-of-function mutation to try to make a virus better at getting into people, you would start with exactly one coronavirus from nature right. and make specific, very small changes. Right. Okay? Which means that we would look at that virus sequence, see that it's a 99.99999% match to something else, and that there's very specific changes made, if the, this was science. The original whack fuck is the idea of a bat and a pangolin-style SARS fucking and making some weird sicko baby is like that's just hard to imagine why anyone goes through that there's so many other animals that we sars fuck that like why yeah. would you go to a pangolin sure although bats didn't you tell me bats are all fucked up as reservoirs like wouldn't it make sense for some nefarious chinese scientist to be like i'm gonna look at bats sure sure that's our huge reservoir of coronavirus but again i mean honestly what i would do if i were doing this kind of thing is i would start just tell me sean with either just a bat coronavirus or maybe the coronavirus that caused SADS in pigs. Right. Because we use pigs a lot. Right. It would be very bad if a pig coronavirus jumped into people because then we'd have an animal reservoir we're around all the time. Right. And I'd be comparing that to SARS and MERS. Right. Okay? Pangolins certainly wouldn't come into play. And we would see way fewer changes in the engineered science -y coronavirus compared to what we see here, which is... A lot of changes all over the place. Also, wouldn't you want to make some really awesome, like, asymptomatic Ebola? Or, like, some cool TB? Like, why are you wasting your time on some punk-ass bitch coronavirus? Well, so I'll say this. There are definitely researchers out there who are focused on coronavirus. 
and explicitly focused on zoonotic transmission of coronavirus. I read some of their papers. They were some of the papers that very early on, and by very, I mean, a decade ago, were saying, we should be careful about coronaviruses because one of these days it's going to jump into people in a way that's way worse than SARS. Right. And so people have been warning about this. Those scientists, I could see them wanting to do experiments being like, what are these changes going to look like? Because if they know what changes make it more likely for something to jump into people, then when they're out there collecting coronaviruses from bats, they might find like, oh, bats in this region have this coronavirus that's very likely to jump into right. people. But the irony is that the scientists didn't get to do these kind of experiments. Right. And so we get slammed by this kind of current COVID-19. So the irony about conspiracy theories, this is usually the case with the conspiracy theories, is that if everyone was competent actors the way conspiracy theory requires, we would really just not have this problem. The problem we have right now is the product of policy incompetence over like 20 years. Yeah, you know, there's a few researchers that I know of that have been working with the little money that they've been able to scrounge out of grants and everything. I'm talking like dancing on sidewalks. Doing exactly these kinds of experiments and the entire time warning about the threats. Yeah, right? like didn't you tell me about a paper in like 2007 or something? Yeah. Where some scientists were like, hey guys, I think the next pandemic is going to be like a SARS-style virus. It's going to ass fuck everybody. Yeah, there's a scientist in China who has been consistently publishing bat coronavirus genomes and doing experiments in their labs using those bat coronaviruses, being like, hey, dudes, we're, we're all in danger. These villages that are nearby bat caves, a lot of the people have antibodies to coronaviruses that no one else has because they're just getting exposed every single day. Right. So, you know, clearly scientists have been attempting to sound the alarm on this for a long time. I do think that there has been a major policy issue. And I think just overall, there's no evidence that this one was man-made. That said, you know, some of the things you were saying jokingly earlier about this, like... This is what gets bandied around. And also, it's impossible to disprove some of those things. It's like, it's like, what if someone really wanted to fool everyone? So they erased all of the... You know, they, they did things that don't make rational sense to throw you off their tail. Sure, it's a joker argument. Right, and at that point, there's nothing you can do. There's no possible convincing argument to disprove those kinds of things. Right. So then, you know, you just have to ask, what is that supposed to lead to? How does that help at all? Yeah. And so that's basically where that leaves us with this thing. There's no good scientific evidence that it is man-made. And that's as far as we can go. I think what people need to really soul search is why is it easier to believe in a nefarious and convoluted conspiracy theory instead of just like germs mutating? Sure. Like, how is it easier to believe in these broader, again, entirely unproven, vague sociopolitical forces over just like fucking some spike protein ass fucking between like a pangolin and a bat and getting in a Chinese web market where like you have all these animals like all all fucking cages on top of each other. Like it, yeah. it's not that hard to believe. Well, what frustrates me, of course, with pretty much all conspiracy theories, but it's a feature of this one too, is that there's some element of truth in a lot of different stuff, right? And sure. So, like, so, for example, China did kind of cover up the COVID-19 stuff for like two months. Certainly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and of course, on top of that, for example, the wet market is another place where conspiracy theorists like to come in a lot. One of the reasons being that a kind of large percentage, a non-negligible percentage of the early people who were sick yeah. don't have any record of being around the wet market. Right. So then, so for example, for me, I personally don't believe that the wet market was the zoonotic jump place. Mm, okay. My best guess is that the wet market was just a place where it was really easy to spread it around. People are everywhere. Right. Right. And swapping juices. Yeah. And that the zoonotic jump probably happened somewhere else earlier 
Zoonotic mm. sounds like if you did Zootopia, but as a Bioshock game. Ooh, that'd be cool, though. It's <laughs> just, like, really fucked. <laughs> so, you know, th- so when there's murkiness to the truth like that, right, conspiracy theories can hop onto it being like, why is the media trying to push the wet market when we know it was actually released earlier right. by the CCP or whatever? But like, th- right. It can still be a Zoonotic jump and not be at that wet market, right? right. Like, that's still the most likely situation. Right. Anyway, so that's my whole thing with this conspiracy. I think we can effectively not talk about it again because even though I don't think we're going to change anybody's minds, I think we've said everything that there is to say about it. Yeah, this was an ineffective debunking. (laughs) And I'm excited to have walked the Sisyphean journey with you. Well... Everybody, thank you for being there with us, too. <laughs> thank you for listening to Sean's very angry rant. Wow. <laughs> very, very <laughs> regressive mind here. Okay, very intolerant. Thank you to Stacy Song, our sound lord and engineer. Thank you, Brian Al, for art. Uh, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Petri Dish. Tweet at Sean. He's ready to fight you. Okay? <laughs> so if you're bored and you want to fight somebody, but you can't get out there on the streets, you tweet at Sean, yeah. okay, because he's vicious. At Dish Podcast, come at me. And, you know, you guys can leave a review for us on Apple or on podchaser.com. Only good reviews, though. (laughs) (laughs) Very complimentary, please. Yeah, I'm listening to you, okay? Phil, Tyler, Matt, any of you guys. Don't you dare leave me one stars. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and we will see you guys next time.